Yes, it's another episode of Lost in Science. Now, the Lost in Science crew, that's Claire, Stu and me, Chris, have had a very, very busy couple of months. Now, rest assured, we'll be back to full strength shortly. But for now, we are continuing our summer series with a look back on some of the big stories of 2019. I mean, technically, it's still summer, so I, I think that's okay. And even more okay, because I get an excuse to play interviews with a couple of very clever physicists. First up is an interview from last December with theoretical physicist Sean Carroll, who will try to explain to us how quantum physics means there could be many alternative timelines, also known as the multiverse. Now, Sean Carroll is actually coming to Australia this month, courtesy of Think Inc., and it's a special treat. We have two double passes to give away to his shows in Brisbane on the 26th of February and also in Melbourne on Friday the 28th of February. If you'd like one of these double passes, then please email us at lostinsci at gmail.com and tell us what your other self is doing in an alternative universe. I will repeat these details at the end of the show, so please stay tuned for that. Meanwhile, back in reality, Claire also brings us an interview with astrophysicist and Gamilaroi woman Crystal DiNapoli about 65,000 years of Aboriginal astronomy and what we can learn today from Indigenous Australians about the stars and nature. Stay tuned for that later in the show. Theoretical physicist Sean Carroll is a professor at Caltech and the author of multiple papers and books on quantum mechanics, general relativity, time and the universe. Actually, more than just the universe, as we'll soon find out. And he'll be touring Australia next year, courtesy of Think Inc. Sean, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks very much for having me. Now, I have to say, it is a great honour to be speaking with you. I've been following your work for many years. Um, as listeners of our show might know, I am a physicist myself, um, so I'm keen to talk to you about some of these things, but I'll try not to get too, um, too nerdy and technical here. <laughs> That's good. I think we'll have fun. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Now, I guess the main thing that I'd like to talk to you about, um, one thing that um, I'm pretty, as far as I'm aware, you're quite a big proponent of, is the, the idea that we live in a multiverse which is also known as the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics. Can you briefly just tell us what that is all about? Sure. I should say very quickly that there are two different notions. What cosmologists call the multiverse is really just the idea that very far away, there's different regions of space where conditions are very different, almost as if it's another universe, although it's not really. Whereas what quantum physicists mean by many worlds is that every time you observe a quantum mechanical system, the whole universe, you and everything around you, branches into multiple copies. And there's one version of you that got one outcome, another that got a different measurement outcome, and so on down the line. Right. So these are sort of alternative timelines to what we experience as our reality. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. They're just a whole bunch of different parallel realities, not located anywhere. They just simultaneously exist. And are they real? <laughs> According to the theory, that's right. Ah. I guess, look, to explain this a bit further, uh, or to explore it a bit further, you were, I believe, a science advisor on the movie Avengers Endgame, which is, of course, you know, the biggest grossing movie of all time. I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but I'm sure everyone's seen it by now. That does involve time travel with multiple timelines. Is that fairly accurate, the way that's depicted, as in if you change an event, then you create a separate timeline? Well, you know, there's a few things to remark here. One is that time travel 
itself is probably not scientifically accurate. We have no reason to believe that you actually can go backward in time. What they tried to do in the Avengers movie, and I think that they were mostly successful, is to not actually create new timelines. They talked about it, you know, the Sorcerer Supreme uh, talked about all these different bad things that could happen, but in the end, everything was internally consistent. So, you know, Back to the Future is, is not a good model for a time travel movie. I think that Avengers Endgame did it better. Okay, go back to the, um, I guess, the physics of the, the, the science of multiple universes rather than the science fiction of it. With this idea, now not everyone agrees with the idea of the many worlds interpretation. Can you tell us what are some of the, the objections people have? Like, what are some of the problems with this theory? Well, it's not hard to see why people would be skeptical. You know, we're saying that every single time a quantum event happens that, that sort of interacts with the rest of the world, the whole of reality copies itself, or at least, let's, get, let's put it this way, it gets sliced in two where the two copies are a little bit different from each other. It, it divides. And that's a lot to swallow. Um, so there are other people who try to get rid of these other universes. The argument for many worlds is just that it's the simplest, most straightforward interpretation of what the equations are trying to tell us. So if you don't like the implication that there are many worlds, you need to get rid of them somehow by changing those equations. And people have certainly tried to do that. So as you said, it is, it is kind of come out of the equation. So it is, is it it's basically a way of um, keeping, I guess, the whole universe quantum, but allowing us to have what we see as a non-quantum world inside that? Yeah, it's basically part of the explanation for why the world looks pretty darn classical. You know, classical mechanics is what was given to us by Isaac Newton, so it was the way that we thought the world worked before quantum mechanics came along. And it's a pretty good approximation. If you want to fly a rocket to the moon, you don't need to worry about the quantum trajectory. You can just believe in Newton's laws of motion and gravity. And so that's one of the challenges for many worlds or for any other version of quantum mechanics is to explain why classical mechanics does so very well when objects are big and macroscopic. Okay, now, I, like I said, I didn't want to get too technical here, but there is something that I've been, um, I've been trying to figure out with uh, the many worlds interpretation that maybe you can help me with. So it's easy, fairly easy to say if you have kind of a quantum event that has two possible outcomes of the universe puts into two options. What do you have if you're measuring, say, a continuous variable like, um, say, the position of... Of, of an object might be an electron and it can have like an infinite number of positions um, throughout space. How does that work in terms of many worlds? Yeah, so there's, this is, number one, a good question. We don't actually know whether or not there truly are an infinite number of possible measurement outcomes you could get for an electron's position or something like that. And this is part of the fundamental question of quantum mechanics that we haven't put enough brain power into really thinking about. Otherwise, you know, when we do a real-world measurement, we don't measure with perfect precision, right? We don't actually have an infinite number of possible measurement outcomes. That's why it's hard to tell the difference. But if we do, that's okay. Then what you can do is just talk about the proportion of worlds that have different properties. Rather than just counting individual worlds, it's like counting numbers between 0 and 1, right? There's an infinite number of numbers between 0 and 1, infinite number of real numbers, but you can still say that half of them are between 0 and 0.5. That's a very sensible statement to make. It's what you're saying. It sounds like we still have a long way to go in terms of understanding uh, quantum theory. Do you think there's a lot of progress being made? Do you think there is still, or do you think there's still a lot to learn and that we might never fully understand intuitively how uh, the quantum world works? I 
think there is a lot to learn, but I think that we are making progress. I see no reason to think that we can't understand it or intuitively grasp it. It's just you have to train yourself, you know? Classical mechanics was hard to understand when it first came along. Relativity was hard to understand. There's lots of things that are surprising, and until we figure out the best way of conceptualizing them, we worry that, oh, we'll never get this. But you know what? Eventually we do get it. I'm not really that worried about that. Now, I have a little bit of time left, so I just want to ask you one more very quick question. If you can, I don't know if you can answer this in, say, 30 seconds or so. What is time? You know, time is a way, as John Wheeler once joked, of preventing everything from happening at once. <laughs> we, let, we think of the world as full of stuff, you know, scattered throughout space, and the world happens over and over again. And time is just a label. It's the coordinate that tells us which moment we're referring to when we pinpoint something in the universe. Great. I think that's a very nice and simple answer. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Sean, for um, giving us a bit of a, an insight into some of the, uh, the complexities of fundamental physics. Now, as I mentioned, Sean Carroll is coming to Australia next year. So if you do want to hear more and find out a bit more detail about these topics, including the mind-bending many worlds of theoretical physics, you should get yourself along. He will be in Brisbane on Wednesday, the 26th of February, Melbourne on Friday, the 28th of February, and Sydney on Saturday, 29th of February, 2020. Oh, 29th of February. That's a, that's a leap year, speaking of time. Exactly. It changes year <laughs> after year. For tickets, you can go to www.thinkinc.org.au. That is think with a K, ink with a C. Thanks again for speaking to us, Sean Carroll. Thank you very much. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. For over 65,000 years, First Nations people across Australia have been observing the night sky to inform astronomy, astrophysics, geography, biology and climate knowledge. To talk about this knowledge and her own research, we have Gamilaroi woman and astrophysics student, as well as CSIRO intern, Crystal DiNapoli. Welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you. Now, Crystal, start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, your research, your interest in astrophysics. Yep. I think like the most important thing to know is I'm just a big nerd. I really love maths and science. As um, we said before, this yes. is a nerd zone. This is a nerd zone. Nerds are safe here. <laughs> yep. I, so I grew up in rural Victoria, first in my family to go to university. And so for me, this has whole bit, like been a massive, I know it's like a learning experience for everyone because it's university, right? But, you know, moving to the city and everything, it's been sort of whew, a bit, bit crazy. So yeah, I started studying um, astrophysics at Monash, sort of took a chance on something that seemed like it'd be quite exciting for me. And turns out I love it. And so I'm near the end of my degree, thank God. <laughs> yeah, and I'm still just absolutely smitten with my studies. I do, yeah, quite a bit of um, research outside of my studies. And so that is on the topic of Indigenous science and Indigenous astronomy specifically. I am biased towards space. Now, um, 65,000 years, I mean, it is a very long time. So does this make Indigenous Australians the world's first astronomers? From, from what we can see, we have um, Indigenous Australians have the world's first evidence of astronomy taking place. So we have like a lot of oral traditions, which we can date back based on what the actual stories describe in terms of geography and astronomical events. So things like meteorite impacts, you know, if we hear about that in a story, we can actually date back that meteorite impact and tell from there but also we have a lot of like rock formations and so these are sites that are related to astronomy in one way or the other one in particular is the word Yuang stone arrangement it's on Wathrong country which is part of the Kulin nation so close to Melbourne and this actually relates to the winter and summer solstices mm. and this site I know they're working on an age still but current projections are over 10,000 years which would date it as the oldest rock site for astronomy in the world 
So yeah, wow. Aboriginal Australians seem to be world's first astronomers. <laughs> that is incredible. Now, you mentioned the Yoying site in the Kulin Nations, but can you take us through some other examples of Indigenous astronomy uh, identifying astronomical phenomena and how the knowledge is really applied? Yeah, awesome. So this, the, oh my goodness, as soon as like I hear questions like this as well, it's just my brain is flooded with different examples. <laughs> so I think like a really core example, which sort of helps, I guess, sort of set the tone and explain, you know, what an oral tradition is and what astronomy can actually tell us about our environment in general is the um, the dark sky constellation of the emu. And so the emu is quite popular. People tend to know about that first, and it's for good reason. Um, essentially, for different Aboriginal countries across this continent, the position of the emu throughout the year would actually tell them quite a bit about what was happening with the emu on the ground. And this was to do with the actual emu egg harvesting season, so knowing when chicks are forming and when the eggs are ready for collection and, you know... But it goes into further detail as well because it's also telling you about how the environment changes and what the emu does with that, how your own food source will change, how your water sources will change and how obviously the climate is changing throughout the year. The emu in the sky, that refers to what we would sort of understand to be the Milky Way? Yes. So it... um, We're quite lucky here in the Southern Hemisphere. (laughs) Yeah, that we can see the Milky Way. Yeah, we have a really good view of it. And it's those dark areas of the Milky Way, that sort of gas and dust that block out a lot of light. Um, That's where we start to get these dark sky constellations. And so, yeah, they're quite common in Southern Hemispherean cultures. Mm. Um, But, yeah, you can see the emu shape. Um, Its head is the Colsac Nebula for any space nerds out there. (laughs) Um, I'm sure there are a few. Yeah, but I I love that constellation because to me, like, it actually looks like an emu. And I think it's, that's why I also think it's a great introduction because it's something that people can really just go out and see for themselves. And especially if you learn that story behind it, you can go out there and see for yourself like, oh, okay, I know that the emu eggs are like ready for harvest now or the chicks are forming now. So depending on the position of the emu, you yep. can it isn't just, I guess, astronomical phenomena that you can you can talk about and the stars out there, but there's so much on the ground that you can relate to it. Yeah. And that's a really common thing. So the reason I highlight the fact that, oh, it relates to all these things on the ground is because that's the way indigenous science was practiced or is practiced. It's not necessarily like, a, okay, all our astronomy is in this little box over here and all of our, you know, biology is over here in this little box. Their stories are what they encode the science into. And they do it so that it's quite interdisciplinary. There is everything told in this one story. And so not only is it telling you about the environmental changes, the animal changes, the sky, the way it's changing, but also it's usually told in a story that communicates some sort of moral lesson as well. And so there's quite a lot of information that goes into these stories. And so it's a very different way of doing science than what we're probably used to with sort of like, you know, <laughs> breaking up into the different little groups of, all right, I'm an astronomer, but you're a biologist. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, the more challenging problems in our world become, the more we're told and the more um, the solution is to find diverse teams yeah. and to work together you know, to come up with solutions. So, you know, the future is interdisciplinary, right? We can't keep working in small little groups. Definitely. Especially for like quite a lot of those like um, worldwide, you know, global issues. Um, I think we all need to come together. And I think that's a lesson you can really learn from the way Indigenous science is practised. Yeah. But then we we have like other examples as well. So we have, um, you know, these stories um, which, you know, describe crazy things like supernovas, which are the big fiery death of larger stars. And it's, mm, it's, sounds it, terrifying. <laughs> they're actually really cool. Like we are currently, we're pretty safe where we are. So if any one of these occurs and Betelgeuse, which is a star that people tend to know by name, at least that should go supernova sometime, maybe in our lifetime, <gasps> you know, tonight, maybe if we're lucky, maybe in 10,000 years, we'll see. 
But when it does, it won't necessarily harm us, but it's going to be a very pretty sight in the sky. So there's things like that that's very exciting. And they pop up in um, Aboriginal oral traditions. That's what we call the stories. But they also, um, in the same place, are then also seen and described by other ancient astronomers around the world in like a written text. And so that's an easy way as well for us to be able to date them back to. Because you see that sort of correlation. Yeah, so there's, there's a billion and one examples. There's a billion and one examples. <laughs> We've touched a bit on this, but why do you think that this knowledge and, and these oral traditions are so important now? I have a couple of different perspectives as to why I think it's important. One of the first one that really does jump out is sort of that correcting of the narrative. I know it's super, super common and I always, I'm starting to forget this whenever I do talks where I'm like, oh, I have to like backtrack and remember the level in which most Australians are at with their understanding of Indigenous culture. Because most people sort of have this idea that, you know, Indigenous Australians, they were nomadic wanderers. They didn't have agriculture or set homes, you know. I've heard they apparently couldn't count above four. (laughs) And like the most bizarre, like, um, I guess, claims. And so that's why I think, for one, educating everyone on Indigenous science is important because I think it's a different way of looking at the culture and it will probably increase a lot of that respect. I think, um, yeah, obviously we've had quite a long time of trying to sort of push, I think, push back Indigenous knowledges. And then the other point is essentially what I was saying before, I think that sort of interdisciplinary, like holistic way of looking at your environment and everything is super important. And I think that's a lesson that everyone can really learn. Just in general, in everyday life, I feel like as well, um, quite a lot of Indigenous knowledge, it's not only just so applicable, right? So, you know, you're learning something that all of us can see, but we're learning knowledge that's very specific to this continent. A majority of the stuff that we do to this earth and the stuff that we've learned is all coming from overseas. And I think it's really important that we start listening to Indigenous Australians about, you know, for example, right, the fire safety with bushfires, you know, before colonisation, bushfires, at least the evidence from what we can see from actually cutting trees and seeing them, you can actually date back the bushfires and they all start around the 1800s. We don't have stuff really before it. And that's because of those preventative measures. And then also things like we should be looking into sustainable crops that are made for this land that we don't have to put excess effort into keeping alive because they just won't make this country. So I feel like there's so much that we could really learn from Indigenous knowledges. And that's why I think there should be quite a lot of like collaboration and support. And, and tell me, how does, how does that passion work in with what you're currently doing? To me, like astrophysics, right? It's sort of like, I guess, like that natural extension of what Indigenous astronomy is. I like being able to sort of take those perspectives, I guess, into my studies um, and try and not lose sight of that sort of, I guess, the way of communicating information, right? Um, Indigenous Australians, they communicate in these beautiful oral traditions, these stories, and it's something that's really accessible for, you know, the young ones to the old ones, depending on how you want to explain the information. These stories you can make as complicated or as simple as you want to. But then also... What I'm doing specifically, I'm actually working a lot in the space of this sort of communication. I love getting the word out. I love trying to educate the public. And this almost sounds like a brag, but it's not a brag, right? It's to highlight how much people actually value it. If I start a talk, it usually sells out and it's because everyone's really interested. And it's awesome to me. They have these people come along, be so enthusiastic to be able to talk with them. I love it. And also a lot of the work I'm doing now is helping create content for universities um, to be able to actually share that knowledge share this knowledge so yeah yeah, it really is becoming my life and it's so funny because it's not necessarily specifically what I'm studying but it's definitely my passion so 
I feel like I'm quite lucky that I get to explore both where I have that nerdy behind the computer astrophysics sort of stuff but then I also really get to engage with the cultural astronomy that's really important to me. And you're doing an internship at CSIRO at the moment? Yes. Tell us about that. (laughs) So I worked there over the summer last year and it was a really interesting step into sort of new terrain. So yeah my background is you know like maths and astrophysics, I love space, all that sort of stuff and so I turn up at CSIRO and I'm learning about granular materials and how to like essentially how to like use them in soft robotics and it was very different but it was actually awesome. Like I had so much fun with it. And then yeah, this this year I'm back. Had my first day today. Woohoo. Well done. <laughs> and I yeah, I have a new project which is really exciting and this is more using AR technology. So it's augmented reality. Augmented reality. So wow. it's not quite virtual reality where you have a whole headset and everything is you're feeling around in the dark. But it's some really cool stuff that you can it's at midpoint. It's really cool stuff essentially like you know shining your camera and being able to make things sort of Pop jump out. up on your phone that yes. look 3D and you can sort of manipulate. And so we have yeah, we have some potential there relating to astronomy and I'm so excited because it's like this time it's like ooh, it's more based on what I really enjoy. So I'm I'm really looking forward to the rest of the summer and seeing what that can produce for sure. Now I'm sure there's a lot of people out in Radioland who would love to learn more about Indigenous astronomy yep. um, but might not know where to look. Can you offer up some advice? Yes. Okay. So first of all, I think a really great starting point is we have a website. So it's www.aboriginalastronomy.com.au. That was created by uh, Dr. Dwayne Harmaker, who's just an incredible person overall. It's so accessible, that website. The information's been sorted into, you know, if you're looking for content. So maybe you want to learn more about, you know, the stars or maybe the sun or supernova in Indigenous astronomy. You can sort by those topics. But maybe you're specifically going, you know what, I want to learn more about Wurundjeri astronomy or Gamilaroi astronomy. And so they have it set out on a map too. And so... You can really explore um, quite a lot of information in a really easy, accessible way. And uh, and locally as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's awesome. I, I love it personally as well because I really get to sort of hone in specifically on like my, you know, my family's roots of, oh, let's, yeah. I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit biased, <laughs> but it's passionately so. Um, but it's a great website. And then as well for anyone like on social media, we have a Facebook page, which is Australian Indigenous Astronomy. And we also have a Twitter which is at Aboriginal Astro, or you can follow me, which is at Crystal Dinopoli. So, Crystal, can you talk about your current research in Aboriginal astronomy? Yes, I can. Um, so it's a topic I actually really love. Um, for, like, personal reasons, I'm, like, so I'm focusing on the Seven Sisters, the Pleiades. They are a beautiful little um, star cluster that pops up right around the world in a number of different um, astronomical traditions. Um, for me, I've always loved this constellation. My mum was always trying to point it out to me and I could not for the life of me see it, but I know it was one of her favourites. So this is like a cluster <laughs> of stars and yes. there's lots of stars Yes, and, um, and there's not a lot around them. Yep. But yeah, I, I, I know the one. I've, I always see it. I'm like, oh... Yeah, there they are. You, you know, it's a fun fact. I don't know if it's fun. Okay. Like, <laughs> keep in mind, I'm a space nerd, right? Um, but actually, like the Subaru cars, mm-hmm. um, they're like the Subaru. The Subaru logo. logo. Yeah, that's actually the seven sisters or those stars. Really? Subaru apparently means like, I think it's like the word for Pleiades in, I think, Japanese. Wow. But so, oh, very cool. So they pop fact. up a lot, right? Yeah. Um, so the seven sisters, um, which I guess is like the colloquial name. But yeah, anyway, the Pleiades, um, they pop up. Um, in a number of Aboriginal traditions as they do, they're, you know, they're an interesting object. Mm. Some of the reasons that they're interesting is because, you know, they're in that sort of empty space 
And they have that massive constellation of Orion relatively close by. Yeah. And the way that they actually go across the sky, it looks like that constellation of Orion's chasing them. And so <laughs> since Orion looks very obviously like a man, there are a number of stories where they're like, oh, these interesting characters, you know, this this crazy cluster full of all these stars that are twinkling brightly and, you know, this, this very defined constellation. Defined man chasing. Yes. <laughs> which is... Which is interesting because when you start looking at the stories about these stars um, all around the world, there are a lot of differences, right? Aboriginal Australia, it's, you know, absolutely um, like different interpretations right across the continent. But a number of these different places start to describe them as seven women or seven girls or seven sisters, which is it's really interesting. And I think there's obviously that is like a conversation and a half right there. But what makes them quite curious is that a number of these different groups will describe the number of stars changing. So sometimes we'll get like six sisters, sometimes seven, sometimes eight. Um, And what I'm currently researching is actually what's happening with that. Like, why do you have that fluctuation in the number of stars? Mm. And so there... And it isn't just because some people need glasses? No. So it's it's really interesting because a number of different... um, This is a very common theme in a lot of Aboriginal oral traditions. Um, When they talk about the Seven Sisters, we frequently get, um, you know depending on whatever object they're called, right, sisters or animals or whatever, we always hear about, you know, the youngest sister or the youngest object or the smallest object, you know, being harmed or something, something to happen to help them dim their light. And so this is like a common thing. It's not just, you know, oh, we're miscounting, but actually we're specifically seeing one of them sort of go away and then maybe come back over time. And the reason that that might be is because it could be a variable star present. And a variable star is? Yes. And so a variable star is a star that changes in brightness because um, stars, I know they look like they're twinkling, but actually pretty much majority of stars, they're actually very constant in their brightness. Like our sun. I mean, if our sun was twinkling as as commonly, that would probably be very disastrous for life on Earth. <laughs> but yeah, so they're, they're, quite, they're quite consistent. But we do get this subgroup of stars that actually change in brightness over time. Um, There are a number of different reasons for why this might occur. Essentially, it's just sort of getting colder and getting like dimmer and then getting hotter and getting brighter. Um, And so, yeah, there is a variable star present in that cluster, which is really interesting. And so it's something that I'm looking into further. And yeah. Crystal, that is fascinating. I hope that you can come back on Lost in Science and talk us through um, how your research is going with variable stars and your internship at CSIRO. Um, But for now, thank you so much for joining us on Lost in Science. And I really encourage anyone out there to head to aboriginalastronomy.com.au and definitely follow Crystal DiNapoli on Twitter because you are awesome. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. And that is it for this week's episode of the Lost in Science Summer Series. Thank you very much to our guests, Crystal DiNapoli and Sean Carroll. Now, if you would like one of those double passes to see Sean Carroll speaking either in Brisbane on Wednesday the 26th of February or in Melbourne on Friday the 28th of February, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com and tell us what your alternative self is up to in some other universe. Uh, Look, you can also, if you want, you can message us on Facebook or on Twitter. We don't mind as long as you get in touch. Now, Lost in Science, it is, of course, recorded in Melbourne on the lands of the Wundry people of the Kulin Nation in the studios of 3CR and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Uh, you just heard the contact details, so that's all great. Well, you can email us, remember, if you want to contact us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Also on Twitter, we are at Lost in Science 1. 
Um, you can, of course, find us on various podcast apps. If you've got the opportunity to give us a rating and review, please do so, because that will help to other people to find us. Um, or if you listen to us on the radio, then please do the same thing next week when Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.